Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So this episode is going to be uh, one of two things. It's going to be first the end of a series uh, on the topic of demons and the culture of death. And number two, it's going to be the end of this season as I'm going to be taking a break for about a month uh, and uh, we'll come back in September. So this will be the last episode for both the series and the season. All right, so to kind of uh, go back to where we've covered, we've already looked at in this series um, the false gods of Baal, Asherah, and Moloch and how these gods form the culture of death or they were a key part of forming the culture of death for the people of Israel. Uh, We saw that Baal, whose name simply means Lord or Master, desires power and domination, control over nature and mankind. Uh, Because in the mythology, Baal uh, wants to overthrow the authority of the other gods and to take power for himself. He wants to be the king of all the gods, and he views the current hierarchy as uh, an oppressive one upon him. Uh, But he's also a climate or storm god, and so he uh, brings in the rains uh, and the harvest, and so as such, uh, he is kind of seen as the power of nature or the power over nature. We also looked at Asherah, the goddess Asherah, and the word Asherah simply refers to the word goddess, Uh, She's also known as the Queen of Heaven, and she essentially desires unrestrained sensuality. Uh, She is a double-minded goddess because in the mythology, she both hates and loves Baal or Tammuz, depending on which language you're you're referring to, but uh, they're essentially both the same character in mythology. Uh, In the one mythology, Baal dies. and is brought back by Asherah or Anath. And then in the other mythology, Tammuz is the one that dies. But if you recall, uh, Asherah is the one that sacrifices Tammuz because he didn't mourn her. He didn't um, love her properly. And so she sacrifices him uh, in order to pay for her uh, redemption, her release out of the jaws of death. Uh, And then she mourns her decision, and then strives to bring him back. So she is double-minded, and there's this uh, two sides to her, a side of violence and a side of lust. Um, And this corresponds to what the ancients viewed as the two sides of the moon. And so um, they they associated uh, the moon with Asherah, moon worship. And then we have Moloch, the god of death. Uh, the, The word Moloch simply means king. And in the mythology, uh, the god of death challenges both Baal and Asherah. They both have to uh, make a payment if they wish to escape death. This this ties into the seasons where um, when Baal returns or when Tammuz returns to the realm of the living, uh, we have the rains, we have uh, the, the, the storms, and ultimately that leads to the harvest and fruitfulness. But when he's gone, when Baal and Tammuz are gone, it's the dry season or the winter season, uh, and there is no life. It's only 
it's only death because they are in the hands of the god of death. But ultimately, if they want to have success, if they want to be fruitful, if they want to have life, they have to pay the price. Um, and usually that is paid by uh, someone else. And the more innocent and pure the sacrifice, the more the god of death is satisfied. Now, in all these mythologies, we see that it relates to the concept of idolatry. And idolatry, of course, results from the fall of mankind into sin. Because we see in the original creation that mankind is made in the image of God, male and female, two genders. We also see that mankind is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and that's through the realm of marriage, through the um, ordination of marriage, that hierarchy that God has established in the family government. And then mankind is to work and take dominion as stewards under God's authority. So they're to turn wilderness into garden and to go out and to have dominion, not, not abusive, but real rulership and stewardship as sons and daughters of God. Now, when it comes to the fall and the resulting idolatry, what ends up happening is all three of those areas are twisted or, or, or broken in some way. First, instead of mankind being in the image of God, now there is no distinction between the creator and the creature. Essentially, all is one. Uh, mankind is divine. And this goes hand in hand with God is not real. So in some sense, either way you approach it, you're either bringing God down to our level, he's not real, he's just a man, or you're elevating mankind. We are gods. We are divine. We are not just the image of God. We are God embodied in this world. And what you get either way is a form of pantheism where everything, everyone, is divine. Everything is God. And we see this also with the idea that uh, the creatures, creation itself, is viewed as divine, whether that's Mother Earth as, as a planet, she is divine, or whether it's animals or plants or the stars, the moon, the sky, the ocean. All these things are now viewed as divine because of the fall. And as a result of that, uh, instead of humans seeking God for wisdom and guidance, looking for revelation from God, now that everything is one, humans can find revelation in different places. They're not going to go to God because he doesn't exist or he is no different than anything else. What they're going to do is they're going to go to creation. So you have astrology. We look to the stars for divine guidance and revelation. Or we look to animals and plants and these animal spirits that perhaps uh, give us wisdom. Or we, we look to natural occurrences like geysers or volcanoes or rivers or storms to give us wisdom. Or because we ourselves are divine, we look inwards. We journey inside and we look inwards, and we find revelation inside of ourselves. We also see the command to be fruitful is twisted, because 
all hierarchy and authority is viewed as oppressive, or at least the kind that God established. So marriage, which God established, marriage in the family, is viewed as oppressive, burdensome, binding. Children are a burden and a drain, a waste of one's time and resources. And identity and satisfaction is not found in God. God doesn't determine our identity. He doesn't tell us who we are and what we're supposed to do. We find that in ourselves. And identity, because of the fall, is predominantly focused on sex and sexuality. Um, basically, all the pleasure, but none of the responsibility and none of the consequences, such as disease and pregnancy. And the goal was to avoid those things, but to get all the fun things that we want. And then we have the third thing is twisted is the command to take dominion. And instead of taking dominion, humans end up on one of two sides. Either we're lazy, we refuse to take dominion, um, or we are abusive and we um, dominate, uh, to kind of use it in a negative term there. Um, and this comes from the idea that, well, if mankind is God, then there are no rules that are made by the one true God, and I don't have to follow them. So really, this world is just mine to do with as I please, with no responsibility uh, uh, for those who come after me or to God. Um, it's a very um, short-term self-satisfaction mentality. But on the flip side, if nature is divine, okay, if everything is one and animals and plants and Mother Earth is divine, well, then I view myself as kind of a, a virus uh, on the planet and that I need to leave Mother Nature alone. I can't touch it. I can't have stewardship over it. Um, and the ideal from that mindset is uh, an untouched wilderness. So instead of a garden where mankind is part of it, no, no, no. The ideal is mankind gone, mankind removed, and nature as wilderness. And all of this, this wrong way of looking at the world, is a, is a strategy of fear and lies by the enemy, by the devil. Uh, and I'm just going to mention just three, three fears, three lies that the enemy promulgates. And the first one is the fear of future, the fear of nature, the fear of the unknown, where God cannot be trusted. Okay, because again, because of the fall, God exists, but what Satan says is he can't be trusted. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. And since he, he can't be trusted, or since there is no God that's over all of the uh, the things of the world, then it's a very fearful place. Nature is dangerous. There's a lot of powerful things out there, animals and natural disasters and diseases and famine. There's all kinds of difficulties. And if there is no God that's overseeing it all, then you're really on your own. And you have to figure out how to placate those powers and manipulate them or to, to use them against others, uh, to control them, um, because we want to be our own gods. And we don't believe or trust in the God above us. 
The second lie is a fear of identity, a fear of God's design, because God is viewed as, as the oppressor. You know, he, look at him trying to tell us who we are and how to live. No, 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 no. That doesn't exist. Uh, we don't want God's identity. We don't want his design. Um, you create your own identity and your own meaning. You determine your own purpose. You speak yourself into existence and you redeem yourself and you remake yourself in your own image because we want to be our own gods and create our own truth. And there's also the fear of failure, fear of judgment because God is mean and a moral monster. And despite how hard we try to ignore God or to pretend he doesn't exist, we know he's there. We're made in his image. We can't avoid it. We know that judgment is coming. Uh, so we try to escape judgment and avoid failure at all costs. We want to avoid responsibility. We want to avoid consequences and shift those to other people. Let others bear the consequences for our actions. Predominantly, let others who are innocent, like the future and the unborn children, let them take the responsibility for our, our sins. And so this is the view that we have of God. He's out there, to, out to get us. He's a monster. Um, and interestingly, uh, in John Milton's Paradise Lost, which is a very well done uh, fictional work, but it's it's meant to tell the story of the fall of mankind and Satan's war against God and against humanity. Uh, in the story, Satan himself views uh, heaven as oppressive. He He describes it as the tyranny of heaven. He believes that God is an oppressor and that God is a tyrant and that he is in the right for rebelling and waging war against him. So all of this is part of the enemy strategy of growing a culture of death. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, we see that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus comes that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so uh, that's what the enemy does, steal, kill, and destroy. Now, if that was just the end of the story, that'd be a terrible story. But there is good news. And the good news involves Jesus, and it involves the fact that he does conquer the enemy, overcoming the lies that the enemy tries to spread. Uh, and I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at the three temptations of Christ. And I see them as a parallel. They are a parallel to Israel. Israel goes into the wilderness and is tempted and fails. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted and, and succeeds. So he's kind of uh, the, the Israel that succeeds versus the Israel that failed. But I also see another interesting parallel. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because the temptations of Jesus are the only time that we see a direct confrontation between Jesus and Satan. There is confrontation with demons and, and with the kingdom of the devil all throughout the Gospels. But this one, we're told, is really the only explicit uh, dialogue between the two of them, uh, the direct confrontation. So, um, but in the three temptations of Christ, I think we see something parallel to um, the false gods of the world. First, Jesus is commanded, go ahead and make bread from rocks? Can you bring harvest from, from barrenness? Can you, can you bring fertility from death? Can you bring fruitfulness from that which is fruitless? 
And it's a, a temptation to wield power over nature. And Jesus defeats that, overcomes that. But then you have identity. Are you really the Messiah? You know, Satan takes him to the, to the top of the temple. Throw yourself down. Are you really the son of God? If you are, well, then God would, would protect you. And so there's a challenge to trust and to identity uh, there. Uh, and then lastly, uh, power and dominion. Um, you know, Jesus is, is told, do you want the kingdoms of the world? Uh, Satan says, I'll give them to you. They belong to me. Here, look at them all. Look at, look at them in their glory. Don't you want that? And so there's that idea of power and dominion, right, being offered uh, to Jesus. And so uh, we saw in previous episodes that all gods are broken up into pantheons. Uh, and there's usually three. There's gods of nature, there's gods of identity, and there's gods of events or human action. And Jesus is kind of being tempted in all these areas. But he demonstrates that he is the God over all three of them. He is the Lord over nature. We see this in the calming of the storm, Matthew chapter 8. And by the way, that's a little interesting because Baal was seen as the storm god, as the god of the climate. And so for Jesus to control the storms demonstrates that that he is Lord over nature, not Baal. Uh, We see that uh, Jesus is, is the Lord over our identities. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter talks about how we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that we who are not a people became a people. Jesus made us a people, and our identity is found in, in Christ. He gets to declare who we are and what we're supposed to do. And he's also the king of all events, past, present, and future. We see this in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, where, uh, where Paul says, uh, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus is Lord over everything, all events, past, present, future, human actions, angels, principalities, and powers, all those things the Lord is Lord over. So Jesus is king. Jesus has overcome the false gods. He's overcome the temptations. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why are things the way they are now? Why why does it seem like the demons are coming back? And the answer, I believe, is found in one of the parables of Jesus, and that's uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. And there's a parallel story in Luke 11, verses 24 through 26. So let me just go ahead and read that passage. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So in that passage, uh, the context is within uh, casting out of demons and the discussion about Beelzebul. And Jesus takes this statement, this idea of possession, uh, of, of the man having a demon, but being cleansed of it, the house is swept, 
Um, but it's empty. And so the demon comes back and the state is worse than the first. But he says that applies to the generation of Israel. He says, so it will be with this evil generation. And that applies to them, the Pharisees, the, the, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the unbelieving people of Israel, the unbelieving Jews of his time. Um, it's going to be worse for them, uh, this sense of demonic possession, right? Um, and really the principle I think we see here is that when any culture, when any people reject God, they're given over to deception, especially if they are the people of God and they reject him. It's going to be much worse than it was before. And I think we see some parallel passages of this in both the New Testament and Old Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, here's what Paul has to say about deception. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we see there in the very difficult passage that those who reject God and reject the truth, God gives them a delusion. Essentially, he gives them what they want. They say, we don't want you, God. We don't want your law. We don't want your truth. We're done. And God says, okay, that's fine. You have what you want. I will give you what you want. You want lies. You want falsehood. You want deception. You shall have it. You shall have it in the full. Um, now, of course, people don't realize what they're asking for because they're so short-sighted. But they get what they want, ultimately. We see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 23 through 26, regarding the people of Israel and their rebellion. Um, and here's what it says. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good, and rules by which they could not have life, and I defiled them through their very gifts, in their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. So again, same idea in that passage. Israel has said, we don't want God's law. We don't want his ways. We don't want his way of living. We're done. We want the idols of our fathers. And God says, okay, if you don't want my laws, which are good, then I will give you bad laws. I will give you the laws of the false gods. You either get the laws of the one true God, or you get the laws of a false god. And they're not going to give you life. Those laws, those rules, they're going to destroy you. They're going to devastate you. You're, you're not going to have life from that. And so these passages, I think, just reinforce the principle that if you kick God out, if you reject him, you're only going to get something much, much worse. You're going to get falsehood and deception and evil laws. And I think in our culture today, in modern Western culture, the push for secularism is the same idea. It's the, it's the emptying of the house. Because in secularism, it's the claim of neutrality that, well, there is no God. 
over the culture, over the nation, over, you know, you, you can worship however you choose, but that's just you personally. You know, keep God in your heart and keep God in your head. But if he comes out, that's unacceptable. We need neutrality, no God in, in the area. What that simply means is that we're all gods running around, banging into each other. Really, just pluralism. We've become pagans. We've become a pantheon of gods where each person is their own God running around, and there's no one true God overseeing it all. And secularism is the new paganism. It's rooted in evolutionary theory, the idea that there is no creator. There is no uh, distinction between God and creation. The universe is all there is. It's cold, it's dangerous, it's chaotic. It's raw power that is to be feared and manipulated, just like the pagans believed. Everything is relative. There is no truth overlying everything. Your identity is however you want it to be. There's no meaning. You create your own meaning. Everything is constantly changing. It's evolution, right? It's random. It's always changing. Nothing is fixed and set. And life is all about competition. It's survival of the fittest. It's a zero-sum game. My gain is your loss. And your gain is my loss. And everyone else is a threat. We're all competing deities. And, and you see that very, very clearly in our world today. Just one example being with pronouns. If I'm God, and I can determine my own identity and gender, and I declare that people are going to use the pronouns I want, well, now hold on a second, but, but you're also God. And no one gets to tell you how to speak and, and what words to use. So now we have two gods, and they're competing with each other. It's not gonna. It's not gonna work out well. It's gonna be conflict uh, because they're interacting with each other, and both of them claim uh, ultimate authority. And the and the result of this now is the rise of a modern form of paganism in our culture. We have Marxism and neo-Marxism. Karl Marx viewed economics as a zero-sum game of the oppressor versus the oppressed, and the bourgeoisie. I guess the proletariat, the haves and the have-nots. Well, that's just been applied now to other areas. Now you've got critical theory. You've got critical race theory. Whites oppress blacks or people of color, and that's just the way it is. It's always been, it's always been that way, oppressor oppressed. Critical gender theory. Men are oppressing women. Uh, critical sexual theory about sexuality and, and uh, how the straights have oppressed the homosexuals. Um, there's all kinds of different theories, but all of it comes down to a power struggle. It's the oppressor versus the oppressed. And you have radical environmentalism. Again, nature is viewed as divine, and mankind must either be joined with nature or must be viewed as a parasite, as a virus to be destroyed because nature is being hurt by mankind. And then you have the view that we are our own gods. Everything is about ourselves. Our self is center to all things. The universe revolves around us. And so we get to pick our identity and orientation and biological sex and all those things. We can mix and match and we can determine our own experience. It's a choose your own adventure novel. And we get to pick and choose what we want and, and get what we desire. And ultimately what we see here is a society that in some sense is possessed possessed by demons. And I want to bring up an example uh, from modern history of the country of Russia. I bring this up because there is a mystery 
and I still don't fully understand it, a mystery behind idols and demons and ideas. And how it is that when God says he gives people over to a delusion or to a spirit of, of falsehood, a, a deceiving spirit, or, or when people are said to be possessed, how exactly does that work? You know, how does a person get ideas in their head that they believe and that they embrace um, and that kind of possess them? And they, and they they can't break out of these ideas. And there's a mystery behind it. Um, but there's there's some sense in which the more a person is possessed by an idea and obsesses over it, the more one could say that they are possessed by demons. And I think the example that I want to give here is from a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky. Now, he wrote many books. Uh, he wrote The Brothers Karamazov. He wrote Demons. And he lived in the mid-1800s in Russia. And just very briefly, he started out uh, as an atheist and materialist. And he believed very strongly in socialism. And this was when uh, Darwinism and, and Marxism, these ideas, were really permeating uh, Russia. So he became um, a revolutionary and an extremist and joined revolutionary circles. But he was ultimately arrested and sentenced to death by the Tsar, the Tsarist, uh, Tsarist government. Now, he was supposed to be executed by firing squad, but just before he was killed, um, or he would have been killed, the Tsar showed mercy and exiled him to Siberia instead. And so he lived in Siberia and did four years of hard labor. And the only book that he was allowed to read was the New Testament. And through this, he repented of his atheism and materialism and socialism and began writing against it, predominantly through fiction. And one of the books he wrote is a book called Demons. It's a fiction novel, and it follows a variety of characters. But one of the characters is a villain named Peter. And what he's trying to do, this character, is destabilize and undermine all of the authority structures and essentially go about uh, the village and the town and the city, go about spreading lies and rumors and falsehoods and pitting neighbor against neighbor and really just trying to cause chaos because his goal is to tear everything down so that it can be rebuilt in the socialist ideal. And so what Dostoevsky shows in this book is that he views demons as the legion of isms, ideas that are that are swallowing Russia, materialism, atheism, socialism, Marxism, Darwinism. Um, and he viewed Russia as a man who was possessed by a legion, like in the like in the Gospels, uh, the Gerasene demoniac who was possessed by a legion. But he also Dostoevsky also said and believed that what's going to happen is that these demons are going to go into the swine of pigs and that the society, the culture of Russia, is going to run itself off a cliff and destroy itself. Um, so it's not going to go very well. But it's going to end with a remnant where those who have accepted the gospel, those who have believed the truth, will be like the formerly possessed man, fully clothed and in his right mind. That there will be a remnant in Russia, but it's only going to be by the power 
of Christ and the gospel. And so I bring that up as an example because from his perspective, ideas were tied to certain ideas. The isms, right, were tied to the demonic. And Dostoevsky would teach and believe that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people and ideas have societies. Societies are moved by ideas. And there is something spiritual and mysterious about that. And it does seem like today, in our own culture, our society is being swept through with ideas. Some very, very crazy and bad ideas. Now, what is the answer to all this? What's the solution to these problems, to this possession that our culture seems to be going through right now in the West? Well, it's the gospel. It is the good idea, the one truth of God and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's repentance and faith on a grand scale. It's recognizing and understanding that Jesus does save individuals, but he also saves nations. Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission, clearly talks about how we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Not individuals, but nations. Now, nations are made up of individuals, but nations can be saved. Just like families can in cities and villages. And Jesus is not just Lord of our hearts, but he's Lord of lords. He's Lord of all things. And so the gospel starts off small. It starts off as a mustard seed or a little bit of yeast and works its way out, spreads and grows. Just like Matthew 13, 31 through 33 talks about. And so our job as Christians is to spread the gospel, both publicly and privately. The public square is not neutral as the secularists would want us to believe. And it never will be. It never can be. It just results in paganism and a pantheon of gods. And so we should expect conflict and adversity when we proclaim this truth in a demon-possessed world. It's going to get nasty, but we have to be ready to handle it and to face it. And one passage that I think is very, very powerful is Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10 through 12. Here's what it says. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So the point there is that there are people in our culture that are being led to death. They're being led away to the slaughter. They're stumbling to death because they've been captured by the enemy. They've believed lies and they're following after falsehood. And our job as God's people is not to shy away from the day of adversity, not to say, well, you know, it's not my business. That's not my business. Or to say, oh, we didn't know it. We didn't know what was really going on. God says, there's no excuse. You don't have an excuse. You know. You know what is going on, and you know what you're supposed to do about it as a Christian. You're supposed to proclaim the truth. You're supposed to rescue those who are being taken away to death. And they're being taken away by the evil one through his lies, through the culture of death, the doctrine of demons. Now, what's our job? What are we supposed to do? Well, our goal is to clean the house. And that's really by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not us that does it. We're just the tools. But God, through us, through the gospel, 
can clean the house. And that's what we want. We want the house to be swept and cleaned, but not empty, filled with the Holy Spirit. And God has given us the tools of Scripture, prayer and fasting, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and worship, and spiritual gifts to go out and to love our neighbor and to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And our instructions are to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to obey Christ and all that He commanded. We are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and we're to call others to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And this fruit is going to work its way out in every area of life. As Christians, the gospel should impact our art and our music and our education, our business dealings, our families, our laws. Our culture will be impacted by the gospel, but it does start slowly one by one and permeates its way outward. But we have to be faithful. Now, what are we to do about that? How are we to go about being part of this mission of redeeming? the nations, the West, and the United States in particular, but all the nations, not just one. How do we go about doing that? Well, I would kind of give it like five steps, really. Five simple steps I want to I want to share with you. The first is we need to repent ourselves as individuals. We need to clean our own house, or rather, allow God to clean it. If there's any area of our lives, any rooms of our house that we don't let Jesus go into, that we say, that belongs to me. You have this Lord God, but not this, not this over here. This alcohol thing or this drug thing, this pornography thing, that, that's not yours. That's, not, that's mine. No, unacceptable. We have to repent and clean our house and let every room be occupied by the Holy Spirit. And then, number two, we need to teach others and disciple our families, our immediate families and households, our children and our relatives, to know God's word. We need to share that with them. Number three, we need to evangelize our neighbors and our co-workers. We need to be able to talk about the things of God and the truth of this world uh, in the workplace and not be afraid of that. Um, and, and maybe if we share the gospel with our neighbor and our co-worker, we'll get screamed at, get yelled at. Maybe that'll happen, but we can't be afraid of it. We need to be praying. Step four, praying all the time. And this is kind of like every step of the way, praying and fasting. Pray for everyone, for those who are trapped in deception, for those who are doing the deceiving, and for those who are in authority and just letting it happen. We also need, lastly, to ask God for wisdom in choosing our battles. Not all of us are going to be called to go to some foreign distant place. Not all of us are going to be called to go to the public forum, school board meetings, or anything else. But are you willing to go? Are you called to go? And are you supporting those who are going? What is God calling you to do? And are you listening? Are you, are you ready for whatever he calls you to do, to take action and to proclaim the truth of the word of God? And so ultimately, our job as Christians is to obey Jesus as Lord. If we believe that Jesus is really the Lord of lords and the Lord of everything, if we really believe that, then we have to live like it as Christians in every area of our lives. But that's who we proclaim. We proclaim Christ as Lord. Not just Lord of the heart, but Lord of everything. And I want to end this series, and I want to end this season, with a quote from Pastor Doug Wilson regarding this topic. Um, he said this in a talk he gave regarding the idea of demons. He says, If Christ is Lord, 
then do what he says. If he's not, then you don't have to. But if you don't have to obey Jesus as Lord, then good luck with your demons. And so the fact is is that if we're not going to trust in Christ and obey him, then we have no way of dealing with the demons that are possessing this culture. With that, I want to thank you for listening to this series and season of Governed by God. I ask that you please share this show with a friend, neighbor, co-worker. Give it reviews, thumbs up, stars, all the things. Just trying to get this out to more people. And if you have any questions or comments or topics that you'd like me to address, you can email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for Governed by God or Eric Leupold and you can message me. Uh, message me there. And so again, thank you. And until September, take care and God bless.